Good morning, guys. Welcome to North Boulevard. Those of you online, so happy to have you. We have um, a really good-looking crowd here at the second service, and I think last week somewhere around 2,000 people joined us online, so just really a great delight to be back with you. And um, I'm excited about starting a sermon series today, which in some sense I hope will signal to you that we're inching more towards what we might get to call normal before it's all over with. So I'm really glad you're here. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, in one of his more important books entitled Sources of the Self, describes two ways that a person can be lost. First, he says, you might know where you are but have no map and therefore not know whence you've come or where you're going. Second, he says, you might have a map but not know where you are on the map. And I would suggest there's actually a third way to be lost. And that is to have neither a map nor to know where you are. My opinion is that everyone who doesn't know Jesus is in that third category. And I don't say that to be mean or hateful. I'm not cynical about it. I'm sad about it. Because with Jesus, we get both a map and an identity. We know who we are. We know whence we've come. And we know where we're going. When Taylor talks about a mental map, what he means is that which many others have described, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries. And it is this. We humans tend to order our lives with stories. You know this. But we generally order our lives by telling ourselves stories. We have to do this. Because at any given moment, your senses are receiving thousands, maybe ten thousands of pieces of data. And you have to order those. Some of them you just can't listen to. So, for example, the noise is going on in the auditorium now. Most of you are blocking those out so you can hear just the one noise. But they're still entering your body. So your body has to decide which bits of information will I pay attention to and how will I make sense of them. And the primary way we do that is through stories. We tell ourselves stories. So, for example, I might tell you the story. I grew up in a good family. My dad loved me. It set me up for life, and now I'm a happy person. It's a story I've told myself. The same person, the very same person, could grow up in the exact same set of circumstances and tell a very different story with the same data. Stories are how we make sense out of the world. We're coming out of what I think might be one of the most difficult years in my life. I'm... I haven't really done an analysis, but I'm guessing this is going to be one of the worst years we've had, and for many of you as well. And as we come out of the difficult year, um, I'm just concerned that we not forget our story. We know who we are. We know why we've gone through what we're going through. We know how we got to where we are, and we know where we're going. I'm concerned that we tell the right story. I'm looking. Here we go. And so I'm starting a series this morning that I'm calling This Is My Story. And the point of it is to remind us of who we are and why we got here. I want to tell you that we've got several resources. One of them is uh, we'll have after every sermon a small group discussion guide. They're always online. You can always just go online at North Boulevard and get those. We also have prepared bookmarks that go along with this series. Now, These are a separate set of bookmarks that I'll talk about later. But at all the campuses and online, we have the bookmark. You can go out. You can do this with your family, your friends, or 
Whoever you've been discipled with, you could do the bookmarks and they'll help walk you through. And I want to encourage you even to memorize the verses that are on the bookmark because as you commit to memory, the story of Scripture will help you understand who you are and where you're going. We're talking about stories. And this morning we're going to start with the book of Genesis and the opening sentence of the Bible because it is the right place to start our story. So it is a story that begins quite simply with this assertion. It's a powerful and beautiful verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to say that from this verse, the very first thing that we need to do is correct ourselves. In fact, I'd like for you to push back against me mentally. Every time you hear me say my story, you should push back against that. Or when I say the story of us, push back against it with your mind. And when I say this is our story, push back against it. Because at the end of the day, if we think of it as our story, we'll never get the juice out of it God intended us to have. That at the end of the day, this verse starts not with David Young. It's not in the beginning was David Young. This verse starts out by saying in the beginning was God. So the proper way to understand my story from this point forward is to recognize that I am a mere character in God's story. God is the one who's telling the story. I'm a character. I'm there so God can set up his story. My story only matters insofar as it's part of a bigger story. And I want to say this is great news. This isn't a demotion of myself. This is a recognition of the power of God in me. Think about it. If we're telling the story of me, if it's all about me, then all the suffering we've been through makes no sense. It makes no sense that we should have gone through what we've gone through. If it was all about me, I'd pick a different story. If the story were about me and I were in a marriage I hated, I loathed, It'd just be a tragedy. There would be no redemption of that. The truth is, I'm part of God's story. And I need to recognize that everything I go through, every act, every scene, every skit that I find myself playing through is actually me participating in a grand narrative that God himself is writing. It's a narrative that starts with God creating us so he could have someone to love. Our rebelling against him, but he in his infinite love saying, I will not let you go. I'm coming after you. That's the story that matters. And that's the story that gives meaning and purpose to the suffering we've been through. That's the story that helps us understand why life is the way it is. This is the story that answers all the questions that really matter in life. And it begins with this verse in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to say there are a couple of competing stories that many of us embrace. And I just want to make quick reference to them. The first two, I'm going to make reference to three. The first two, uh, they're meta-narratives that are told in North America. But I'm going to just say nobody really believes them. Nobody really believes the first two. Even though they may be taught in our universities, even though there are entire books and television programs and movies made based on these, nobody really believes them. The first one I'm going to call among the fake stories that we tell is physicalism. This is not the same as science, by the way. Science and scripture are, are very compatible. They're not incompatible at all. 
But physicalism is the belief that all we are is particles in motion. That is, there's no such thing as metaphysics, as Aristotle would call it. Physicalism is just a belief that we're chemicals in motion. And this may be taught in some of the physics courses around the world, not every physics course, but in many of them. But I'm just here to tell you nobody believes it. Even the people who teach it don't believe it. You know how I know that? Because as soon as they tell me that chemistry is all, they, all there is, they run away and argue for justice. And I'm just letting you know there's no such thing as justice if all we are are chemicals in motion. The fact that we all crave aesthetics, beauty, the fact that we all look for justice, the fact that we all think if you step in front of me in line, you've committed a sin. The fact that we all recognize that is evidence that physical particles are not all there are in the universe. In fact, it may be that that's just the smallest fragment of what actually exists. So though this competes for some attention and though I think it's sometimes used to silence the voices of Christians, nobody really believes it. And nobody really believes the second one either. The second one is what I will call Darwinian randomness. So when Charles Darwin published his Origin of the Species in 1859, he made the argument that all of life can be accounted for by genetic mutations that randomly occurred on planet Earth. Now let me pause and say a thing or two. I will speak to all of you, but we have teenagers sitting up here, those of you online. But you have some teenagers there too. But I want to say to you teenagers, when, when you get to the university and you start to hear about evolution, let me just say this, you should believe it. Like we know evolution happens. It's not like some big secret. I was just mentioning at first service, I see uh, here at this service, down here to my left is Bob Blaylock, Robert, Bobby, Bob, who is a, veterinar a veterinarian. And uh, I didn't check this with Bobby first. I should have. I, I've called you out because by being nice to you, if I'm wrong, you won't be hard on me afterwards. But my understanding is that most breeds of dogs are only about six or 700 years old. That is, if you go back six, seven, 800 years, there was only one kind of dog. Now look at how many varieties of dog we have today. They have evolved, purposefully evolved. So we took care of uh, Rachel's dog this weekend. She has a little uh, King Charles. They're just the sweetest little dogs, just as gentle, and they, all they wanted to sit in your lap. And then a couple of weeks ago, we took care of Jonathan's dog, Bear. And Bear is just what you think he is. I mean, you, wouldn't, you really would think he's a bear if you saw him in the woods. He's huge. Well, 700 years ago, it was the same dog. But they have evolved differently over the years. So what we don't want to do is somewhat naively say evolution's not true. It is true. It happens all the time. The error of Darwin was not evolution. The error of Darwin was the belief that it's random. It was a belief that it's unplanned. Darwin's mistake was to think that if you put enough cells in a Petri dish and shake them around, a human being will come out. And we know that, first of all, it's not provable. You couldn't prove, you cannot prove random. No matter what you do, you will never prove that it was random. But second, it's just wrong. You are not here randomly. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. And you know that. The strongest Darwinians know that. That's why even the strongest Darwinians go out and march in protest because they don't believe it's random either. I'll say it. Black lives matter. But if Darwin is white, right, he was white, if he's right, no life matters. If Darwin is right, everything is an accident. 
including you. And these are two stories that we need to recognize underlie so many of the narratives that North Americans tell themselves, even though, again, as I say, I don't know anybody that actually believes these things. By their behavior, they prove otherwise. This is a story I'm concerned about, what I would call egocentrism. That is, this is the one that competes for your attention. This is the story you really want to tell yourself. There's no truth other than me. That's the real competition. The belief that the world was created on December the 29th, 1960. I would jot that down if I were you. The belief that this world ultimately revolves around me. Everything is to be measured by what I want. Everything is to be measured by what I like. Everything is to be measured by what I find uh, attractive or what I find is useful or what I find is right. And I just want you to know, if you make yourself God, you have lost connection with the one true God. And you have started down the road of misery. Because we weren't made in our image, we were made in God's image. More on that in a moment. So our story starts with God in Genesis chapter 1. And it begs two questions. The first question is, who is this God? Since the opening words in the beginning, God, it begs the question, who is this God? And the second question, which we'll come to in just a moment, is why would he bother to create anything? So first, who is the God? And let me say this. The Bible, generally speaking, does not define God. It gives a lot of attributes of God, but it doesn't define God, certainly not like a philosopher would. The Bible just assumes God. In fact, uh, Psalm 14 and verse 1, David says this. It's a fool. It's an idiot. The Greek word for fool is moron. It's a moron who says in his heart there is no God. Because the Bible assumes that any thinking person can look at the fingerprints all over the universe and say there must be something, someone behind it. So the Bible, generally speaking, doesn't try to define God. Instead, it just assumes if you're smart enough, you're going to see him. And yet from Genesis 1, we can conclude some things about this God and here are a few. First, we can conclude that God is eternal. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God exists outside creation. He's not part of creation. He's independent of creation. And in a sense, God is timeless. We have to be careful with that term. In a sense, God is timeless. So the analogy that best helps me is the thought of the perfect triangle. The perfect triangle has always existed and it will always exist. And it will exist even if no one ever draws it. Because mathematically, it has its own self-constituency. It exists by itself. In the same way, God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit as far back as you could go and will continue to exist as far forward as you can go. God is eternal, infinite. God never ceases. And that's helpful because it reminds me of why I say God's story ultimately is my story. Because God is the ultimate ground of being. That all things that exist spring from God. That everything that is really important, when you boil life all the way down, when you boil the universe all the way down to its final point, it is God. He's the source of all things. This is a memory verse. I challenge you to take with you. It's 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6 where Paul sums it up. And notice he speaks about the past and the present. He says, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, past, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we now live, present. That is, because of who God is, we live in God's story. 
There's a second thing about God I want you to see in this text. And that is God is powerful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God started thinking. How could we just, just for a moment, pause long enough to appreciate the kind of God we're talking about? And I went to the source of pretty much all truth, YouTube. And when I got to YouTube, I found what I consider to be like one of the finest illustrations to think about the power of God. So I'm going to show you a clip from it in just a second. Before I do, let me give you an illustration. It's so easy for us here at whatever, I'm 5'11 on a good day. I'm getting like 5'11 in all directions too, by the way, if you haven't noticed. On a good day, 5'11, think about how big the universe is in comparison to you. Think about that for a second. So here's an illustration. If planet Earth were a golf ball, a golf ball, our, so the size of a golf ball, our sun would be about a football field and a half away from us, which is pretty astronomical to think about. Quite literally astronomical, isn't it? But here's the, here's the crazier thing. You know how far the next star would be? Alpha Centauri? You know how, you know how far that star would be? It would be 25,000 miles away. The very next star would be. That is the entire circumference of planet Earth. That would be like leaving to go to Laverne and going east and coming back from the west. Let me put it to you in terms of this cool video, the cosmic eye, which sort of walks us through. And we're going to speak in terms of kilometers for a second. So here's a woman lying in a field in San Francisco. We're at one meter, which is a little more than three feet. Uh, We've moved to 10 meters. You see it goes up by 10 each time. 100 meters. We end up now looking at San Francisco as we move back. This is Google's headquarters, uh, a mountain view. Now we're at 100 kilometers And as we continue to move out, you see planet Earth. Planet Earth, which is better than 10,000 kilometers in diameter. And we move out into our solar system. And here's what I want you to see. Just our solar system is astronomical. That is just our planets, however many we have now. Just our planets constitute such a small sliver of the known universe. So we stop it here for a moment to help you to see that our solar system, just our solar system, our planets, the, the Kuiper belt that goes around and so forth, 100 billion kilometers across. In fact, the numbers become meaningless to us, which is why physicists speak in terms of light years. So a light year is the amount of time necessary for a beam of light to travel in the course of a year, going at 286,000 miles per second. So we're talking about a really long distance here. Let me ask you a question. How many light years across do you think the universe is? Let's keep watching. So as we move back, we get to the, the, uh, this uh, belt, the or- Oort cloud that's around us. This is a cloud of dust, some stars that are around our solar system, and we're now at one light year. But I want you to know, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the galaxy yet in which we find ourselves the milky way so let's keep going out and we'll see the galaxy here as we go out we're at one light year we move to 10 light years Uh, we get in the neighboring stars now we're at 100 light years across Uh, we pass some uh, Magellanic clouds we end up now very close we're just about to get to our milky way galaxy and I just stop here to say the milky way galaxy is 100 
8,000 light years across. That's one, one galaxy. So let me just put it this way. By the way, the word galaxy, the English word, comes from a Greek word, galactose, which means milk. Because as the ancients looked up in the sky, it looked like milk in the sky. That's why we call it the Milky Way. I didn't make that up, by the way. That's because sometimes, you know, I make up stuff, but not that one. So let me just say this. If you're standing at the edge of the Milky Way galaxy and you turn a flashlight on, light traveling at 286 miles, 286,000 miles per second, it will take 100,000 years for the light beam to get to the other side of the galaxy. 100,000 years. Everybody with me? You know how many galaxies there are? A billion. We've just talked about one galaxy. So as we move out, we start to count now in terms of uh, one million light years. We start moving out to Andromeda Galaxy, 10 million light years. We start moving out now to 100 million light years. And best we can tell, based at least on YouTube, the known universe is somewhere in the vicinity of 100 billion light years across, which means that if you turn on a flashlight on one side of the universe, traveling at 286,000 miles per second, it will take 100 billion years for that light to get to the other side of the universe, which is quite impossible because the universe is expanding, by the way. So I just want you to see all that for two reasons. First of all, because when we say God is powerful, I want you to have a sense of how powerful he is. But here's the real thing I want you to see. We'll get to just a second. We're just seconds away from it. The God who did all of that loves you. That's the real thing. The God, the God who did all of that, not only did, does he love you, he prepared all of that for you. I mean, all of that just for you. Just so that we could be the pinnacle, the apogee, the climax of his creation. All right, two more things about God and then we're done. God is rational. This is why we have seven days of creation or six in a day of resting. So you know this from scripture. If you go through the rest of chapter one of the book of Genesis. On the first day, God separates the light from the darkness. On the second day, God separates the water below the oceans from the water above the sky. On the third day, God creates the plants and he uh, makes dry land appear among the oceans. On the fourth day, God appoints the sun, the moon, and the stars to their rightful role as calendar keepers. On the fifth day, God creates the birds and the fish. On the sixth day, he creates the furry animals, the dogs, and then the apogee, the climax, Adam and Eve, humans, who are created, he says, in his image. And I want to say a word about this as well. So again, let me I want to address those of you who are headed for the university. The biblical narrative is, first of all, is spectacular and beautiful. But one could easily read it as in conflict with what science says about the age of the earth. So typically speaking, geologists speak of the age of the earth as something just over 4 billion years. And the age of the universe, 14, 15 billion years, something like this. I want to tell you there's no inconsistency between science and the Bible. Science rightly understood and the scripture rightly understood, they're in perfect agreement because God is the author of both. So I want to tell you how I read this text. And I'll tell you, I'm in good company. Augustine, who is perhaps the greatest thinker in Christian history since the Bible, maybe excepting Thomas Aquinas, and none other than Talbert Fanning, who founded the Gospel Advocate and preached the first sermon in the Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, agreed on what I'm about to say. The way I read Genesis 1 is like this. I think the opening verses in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, happened billions of years ago. And the days 
are not actual days of creation. They're days of ordering. They're days of appointment. That is, I'm fine with a very old universe. And let me give you three reasons why I am. First of all, I just wanted you to know if you core drill right here, any, just pick anywhere in this room. If you core drill right here for 500 feet for a full mile, you will be digging up fossils that were laid down by an ocean bed and have been laid down for so many years that they cooked together and became limestone. That's a long time. So you don't have to go somewhere to China to find this. You don't have to go to Australia or New Zealand. Right here, there's all sorts of evidence of an old earth. This is what made Talbert Fanning, the first preacher of the Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He was a geologist slash preacher. And he said, we know that the world is old. There are two other reasons. Let me say this. In the days of creation, you notice that the plants are made before the sun is. Now, you don't have to be a botanist to realize there's a problem there. Because plants don't flourish without a sun. What I think is happening in the text is not that the sun wasn't created until this day. What happens is the sun wasn't given its job until this day. It had been here for years. But on this day, God said, I now appoint you as calendar keeper for the humans I'm about to create. And if you want a little Hebrew to make you feel good about my position, which by the way, you don't have to accept. I'm just telling you this is my position. We find two words for create in Genesis chapter 1. The first one is the Hebrew word bara. I have them here behind me. So we have barashit bara elohim et hashemayim avet ha'aretz in Hebrew. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word that's translated created here is a word that generally means to create something out of nothing. It's a rare Hebrew word. I think the opening verse of Genesis is creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God started with nothing and made all the heavens and the earth. But then we find another word used in Genesis chapter 1, and it's the word asa in Hebrew, and it means to appoint or to arrange something. That what I think is occurring in this text is that God has created the heavens and the earth however many years ago he did. I'm comfortable with 14 billion or whatever. Science will change its mind. When it does, I'm okay with that too. But when God decides it's time to create Adam and Eve, he orders the universe now for us. And let me tell you why that matters. Because it leads me to my last point about what we learn about God, and that is this. The entire creation was ordered in such a way that you could flourish. It was all done for you. You are God's climactic creation. You're not an accident. You're not the result of random processes. You are not a mutation off of some genetic strand somewhere. You are part of God's creation, designed by God, as the Lord says, made in his image. Everything in Genesis 1 is not designed to answer all of science's questions. It's designed to answer your questions. And your questions are, why am I here? And God's answer is, you are here to be like me. And you know it's true because I just spit. That's usually a sign of great truth. God is relational. As so a note in verse 26, he doesn't say, I'm going to make humans in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, forever, forever in existence. So this is who God is. But then the question, why does God create the heavens and the earth? Why? Uh, isn't the answer pretty obvious, really, when you get down to it? Why does anybody create anything? 
Some of you are musicians. Why do you create music? Some of you are engineers or architects. Why do you create? You're medical professionals. Why do you want to work with your hands? You're artists. Why do you want to create things? The answer is always the same. When you think about it, the answer is always the same. Love. It's always love. Even if you create a work of art out of rage, the reason you have rage is because love has somehow failed. It's always love. Those of you who have had children, why in the world did you want to bring in a child into this world knowing that one day they would become a teenager? <laughs> because you wanted, you craved, you begged God, give me somebody to love. This matters, guys, because what it says is you are not an accident. Your story is the story of the God of the universe, so vast and so big. That a universe a hundred billion light years across is pocket change to him. That God said, I'm going to make a Daryl. Let's make him good. That God did that. And we matter before that God. So as he says, as he reaches the climax of creation... Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds, the sky, the livestock, the wild animals, over all the creatures. So God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. That the whole story, your story, is the story of a God who says, I want a child that I can love. You're God's child. Don't let all the nonsense of accidents and evolution at random and whatnot, don't let it distract you from the fact the reason you are who you are is because God wanted a child to love. That's who you are. And he loves you enough that he created you knowing. He created me knowing I would rebel because he wants somebody to love. Let me put it this sense. So bring it light back down, if you will, up there. Let's go back to our universe, 100 billion light years across. All of this creation, all of this order, all this reason, all this power, all this wisdom, the technology, the engineering, the mathematics behind this, all of it was for one simple reason. God wanted somebody to love. That's your story. That's our story. Our story starts with a God who loves us so much. He says, I want a baby. I want a baby. And so he made me. No wonder, David says in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what you set in place, what is humanity that you're mindful of us, that you would care for us? And then he says, you made us a little lower than the angels and you have crowned us with glory and honor. This is our story. And even when we messed up the story, because that's next week, it may not be as happy next week. Because next week is a story of a humanity that was created an image of God and then rebelled against it. But the good news is after that, God said, I'm not going to let him go. I'm going after him. And a grand rescue scheme started at the fall of humanity. So physicists speak about this. Before it was a movie, it was a real thing. The theory of everything. So modern physics is boiled down to, I don't know how many, Nick could tell me, how many 
formula or descriptions of, of, the, uh, of the world. There are a theory of gravity or electromagnetism or quantum mechanics or whatever it is. The holy grail of physics is to find one sentence. For 50 years, physicists have looked for this. Find one sentence, one formula, one statement that seems, whether it has to do with quirks or, or string theory or whatever, find some, one thing that seems to summarize the entire undergirding, the ultimate being of the universe, that which can explain all other things. The holy grail of physics. I don't mind telling you, your story's already answered that question. The theory of everything is wrapped up simply in this. A loving, powerful, rational God said, let's make somebody to love. And he created us. The longest, one of the longest running a cappella groups in uh, history, certainly in modern history in America, is Vocal Union. Now, I think owned by a cappella corporation. I don't know how it all sorts out. I know our... Um, worship leader at West Campus, Joey Mustaine, has sung for a vocal union for over 10 years now. And I heard a song by vocal union, I don't know, 15 years or so ago, and fell in love with it. And I contacted Joey this week and said, tell me a little about the song. So the song was written by Gary Miller, who passed away some years back. And Gary uh, was, I think, one of the founding members of vocal union. He was just a fabulous guy. Actually, I have his picture up here. He died, I think, while touring with the group. And Joey said that Gary wrote this song during a kind of a low point in his life. The name of the song was Heaven's Irony. And it describes how that there's this irony in our story that this great, awesome God, loving God, somehow chases even we who have rebelled against him. There's an irony there. It's a beautiful irony. So you guys know when the pandemic struck, we didn't really know what to expect. I was anxious. I assumed many of you were anxious. A lot of you were holed up in your living rooms. People were losing their jobs. We didn't know. We didn't know. And I just thought, how can I, I'm old enough to be the father for some of you and unfortunately the grandfather for others. I thought, how can I communicate some peace or maybe a little bit of love? And so I decided to sing. I know it's weird and hokey and I'm not a musician. I get all that. We're back out. Maybe we're out for good. I'm going to close down the singing part, but I do want to do one more song before I close it down. It's this song, Gary Miller's song. Because it seems to me this song just sums up the beginning of my story. Hang on. <laughs> Emma from Aiken, South Carolina, I want to sing this for you. <clears throat> I'll just do a verse. If I can. This song jerks tears out of me. On a hill outside Jerusalem, soldiers led him there to die for them. As they nailed the hands that created man, he prayed that they would be forgiven. A lowly carpenter from Galilee loved the wealth that's found in poverty. Heaven's power clothed in humility. Let the cross become his destiny through his stripes. I am healed through my hate. His love revealed through my sin. 
shines his light. Through his death, he gives me life. Heaven's irony. The Father's love is full and free. Heaven's irony. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. That's our story.